Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. It is normally the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times, but this is the special U.S. election episode of Alpha Chat. It's coming out just ahead of Super Tuesday when a number of states are going to decide who they're going to support for both the Republican and Democratic Party. And Shannon, we've got such a full lineup here. Why don't we get right to today's show? All right. First up, we are going to head on to the campaign trail with Courtney Weaver, our U.S. political correspondent, and Dmitry Sevastopolo, our Washington bureau chief, to talk about what is going on, the state of the race on both sides. And then about a week ago, I spoke to the Libertarian Party's Gary Johnson. He ran for president in 2012. He got about 1% of the vote, and he's running again this year. But he has a unique insight, I think, into what's happening this year. It was a really interesting conversation. And then finally, we're going to play an interview we did in D.C. last week with Vivica Novak of the Center for Responsive Politics, talking about how money is raised and spent in U.S. political campaigns. Stick around, everyone. First up, we're joined by Courtney Weaver and Dimitri Sevastopolo to talk about the political campaign. So, Dimitri, uh, it's been a pretty crazy last week on the Republican front. Uh, take us through what's happened. It has been a crazy week. Uh, essentially, as we head into Super Tuesday, Donald Trump is increasing his lead in the opinion polls. He's now, after coming second in Iowa, he won New Hampshire, he won South Carolina, and he won Nevada. And if you believe the polls, he's looking pretty good for Tuesday in almost all the states, with the exception of Texas, where Ted Cruz, the Texas senator, is hoping to make his last stand. The Republican Party is descending into panic. Establishment politicians are beside themselves. They're worried that Donald Trump is going to win the nomination, which looks increasingly likely, and more importantly, that he will lose the White House race to Hillary Clinton if she's the Democratic nominee in November. In the last few days, Marco Rubio has launched a series of attacks on Donald Trump. They've been engaged in kind of juvenile mudslinging where he's uh, mocked the tycoon for everything from his fake suntan to the size of his fingers, which is something that Donald Trump is apparently uh, very sensitive about. But mainstream Republicans are worried that Rubio has left it too late and that there's really little chance at this point of stopping the Trump juggernaut. Tuesday will be one sign as to whether he has managed to do it. And then March 15th, when Florida votes, his home state will be a big test as to whether Rubio can emerge as a genuine challenger to Trump or whether the tycoon has locked it in the bag. And do you expect, will we see any more further winnowing of the field after tomorrow? Probably. Well, it, it's unlikely. John Kasich, the Ohio governor who's still in the race, is aiming to stay until Michigan, which votes next week. And then if he has enough money to Ohio, his home state, which votes on March 15th. Uh, ben Carson, the retired neurosurgeon who really doesn't factor in the polls at the moment, but he's still in the race, uh, he'd probably stay in. 
but Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump uh, have got the money to stay in, obviously. Um, we don't expect them, any of them to jump out anytime soon. Certainly not Mr. Trump. Dimitri, a quick follow-up on that. Is there any circumstance under which Trump wins the majority of states and gets the plurality of delegates apportioned by each state, but still doesn't emerge as the Republican nominee? I mean, the mathematics of the primary race are incredibly complicated. You have proportional states, you have winner-take-all states, and even the proportional states, it's complicated as to how you win delegates. So it's possible that we could get to the convention in July and Trump would have a plurality, but not a, a majority, not a sufficient number to take the nomination. If that was the case, we would probably have what people have hoped for for many years, which is a kind of a brokered convention where the party would try and work out who its nominee would be. But Trump, if he had the largest number of delegates um, and the backing of the, the populace who uh, voted for him, would still have a very strong hand. And it would be a, a pretty bold move for the party to try and dislodge him. And one of the dangers is that Trump has repeatedly warned that he could run as an independent. So that's one of the reasons the Republican Party has found itself between a rock and a hard place. Okay. And Courtney, turning to the Democrats now, fewer juvenile antics on that side, I think, but still quite a lot of hectic activity in the last week. Can you tell us just uh, what we've learned? Sure. So the real turning point, I think, was Nevada last weekend. Uh, you know, we didn't have very reliable polling going into that race, and it wasn't clear at that point who would win and by how much. But you had Clinton emerge as a clear victor in that race. She got four percentage points more than Bernie Sanders did. Uh, and that really gave her this momentum going into South Carolina this past weekend. Uh, in both Nevada and South Carolina, she got, you know, a vast majority of the African-American vote in those states. She got more than 75 percent in Nevada and then again in South Carolina. Uh, and then in South Carolina, she basically crushed Bernie Sanders. So she beat him basically among every single age group except uh, young people under the age of 29 she beat him among Latinos. She beat him among African-Americans. So basically, this has given her this momentum going into Super Tuesday, uh, where now we're really expecting her to win the majority of the races in the 11 states. The, the five states where Bernie Sanders is seen as being competitive are Colorado, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Oklahoma, and Vermont. These are all states that have, um, most of them have caucuses. They have, they're mostly white. So those you know, have similar demographics to Iowa and New Hampshire. But really, you know, at this point, it's hard to make the math work to get to see Bernie Sanders getting the nomination. So do you think that after tomorrow, uh, after Super Tuesday, we're going to know whether or not Bernie Sanders is going to face a lot of pressure uh, to drop out or whether he'll arrive at that decision himself? I think he'll arrive at that decision himself. I mean, I think we're definitely going to see it sometime in the month of March, but I think he will stay in after Super Tuesday. And you know, I think from the beginning, it was always assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee, even with all her struggles over the past couple of months. But what these the win in New Hampshire and this virtual tie in Iowa have given Bernie Sanders is really, I mean, not only just delegates, but now he's he's pushed Hillary Clinton to the left on a lot of issues, uh, which you know his supporters will like, and I think he will also perhaps force her to pick a more liberal. Uh, VP candidate in the general election just to satisfy Bernie Sanders supporters. And Courtney, is there any sense that among the that young group that Bernie does seem to really resonate with, that they it's you know not just that he might throw his support behind her if he drops out, if and when he drops out, but that actually his voters would go to Hillary in the general? I mean, talking to voters in Nevada and South Carolina and New Hampshire and Iowa, I think the majority of them will go for Hillary Clinton, especially if it's someone like Donald Trump as the nominee. I mean, you have you talk to some voters and they see Hillary Clinton as being very establishment. 
uh, they don't trust her. You know, they're very concerned about the emails and Benghazi. And you have some people who say, I would never vote for Hillary Clinton. But I mean, the vast majority don't want to see a Republican in the White House, and especially one like Trump, who is so controversial. All right. Well, thanks to both of you. It sounds like uh, we're going to have plenty of fireworks to be reporting on uh, for the next several weeks uh, and even months. Um, but your seatbelts. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Courtney Weaver, Dmitry Sevastopolo, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up next, I recently spoke to Gary Johnson. He's the former two-term Republican governor of New Mexico. He's now a member of the Libertarian Party, and he ran for president as the nominee for the Libertarian Party in 2012. He got about 1% of the vote. He's running again this year, and he's likely going to be their nominee. He's there in part to make a point, but he does have a kind of intriguing insight, a number of them actually, uh, into what's happening in this particular election cycle. And he also tells us what happened to the libertarian moment that everybody was talking about a couple of years ago that seems to have vanished in favor of a populist moment. Governor Johnson, thanks for coming in and talking to us. Cardiff, it's wonderful to be here talking to you here today. Thank you. So here's here's my first question. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of chatter amongst pundits about a libertarian moment, right? There was a cover story on the New York Times magazine. There was a lot of excitement about the candidacy of Rand Paul and the Republican Party. To the extent that it ever took hold, it seems to have been a very vanishing moment because now it seems like it's given way to more populist sentiment. And you see that in the campaigns being waged by both of the major parties. So I guess my first question is, what has you convinced that there's still an appetite within the American electorate for candidates that run on libertarian platforms? Well, uh, Rand Paul ran as a Republican. Rand Paul is a Republican. So that's probably the the number one reason that I would point at is that it really didn't catch on is because it was Republican. It really wasn't uh, libertarian. So speaking with a broad brushstroke, libertarians are fiscally conservative and socially um, socially tolerant. Socially tolerant. Tolerant. Right, to distinguish from socially liberal. Well, or socially liberal. You could you could say socially liberals. Um, the notion of personal freedom, personal liberty, and the responsibility that goes along with that. Uh, Rand Paul um, is a social conservative, and uh, all of the Republicans on stage are socially conservative. And I think uh, at the end of the day, um, most Americans are fiscally responsible and socially, if you want to say liberal, liberal, which is the definition of a classic liberal. If you Wikipedia classical liberal, that's what you come up with. Sure. But the, the candidates of both parties that right now seem to be doing well, um, I don't think would be categorized that way. Uh, you know, even on the Republican side right now, Donald Trump is doing well and at least in terms of economics, he's actually pledged to protect entitlements. And if you look at some of the political science on this, right, there does seem to be a break between the views of, say, like wealthy Americans or so-called elites, and then the majority of what you might call the middle class or, or lower income people who actually want some of that, you know, they want Social Security protected, they want Medicare and Medicaid protected, What's your message to them about the libertarian platform and why they would be helped out by it? Well, first of all, I think that uh, for the Republican to get the nomination, they have to cater to 30 percent of the far right. That's the base. For the Democrat to get the nomination, I think the Democrat has to cater to 30 percent of the far left. That's the base. 
And when 50 percent of Americans right now declare themselves as independent, uh, what you end up with with the two major parties is solid representation of 30 percent of the electorate. So I really think that people do recognize uh, that entitlements have to be reformed. I think that people genuinely uh, recognize that uh, there's an implication to continuing to spend more money than what you take in and that these things really need to get fixed at the end of the day and that it's not uh, it's not Santa Claus. They seem to be running uh, on like I say, catering to that 30% far right, catering to that 30% far left. And in the great middle are people that really recognize that we got problems and they got to be fixed. Okay. Uh, and I want to I come back to your views on fiscal policy in a moment. But first, let me ask you just a, a basic question about the mechanics of running a third party long shot campaign, right? Because I think this is something a lot of people don't know. How do you go about trying to get attention when most of the media and most of the money flocks towards the two major parties. Uh, what do you do in, in something as, as basic as how do you fund your campaign? Do you do it through online donations or do you do other things through social media? How do you do it? Well, we're literally raising hundreds of dollars in this campaign. <laughs> I see in that total, tongue in, in total, cheek. You mean in total. In total right? okay. So how do you do it? Well, uh, I think it's important to point out that the libertarian nominee, and I am seeking the libertarian nomination for president, but the libertarian nominee will be on the ballot in all 50 states. Um, That is something that perhaps no other third party will be able to lay claim to, even if it's Michael Bloomberg with all the money in the world, given the time constraints, he may not, if he decided tomorrow Uh, that he wanted to run as a third party, he might not be able to get on the ballot in all 50 states. So that's very significant. How do you battle it? Well, um, politics is all about money. Uh, Politics is all about name familiarity when it comes to voting. And uh, during the last cycle, 2012, I did take third place as the libertarian candidate for president uh, with 1% of the vote. Uh, We spent a million dollars in 2012. That's what we raised. That's what we spent. Um, Democrats, Republicans each raised a billion dollars in the presidential campaign. This cycle, it's estimated that that's going to be two billion dollars. So at best, this is a really, really an uphill struggle. I am suing the Presidential Debate Commission uh, right now uh, to get into the presidential debates. The contention is is that if you're on the ballot in enough states to mathematically uh, be elected president, 270 electoral votes, then you should be included in the presidential debates. That offers the opportunity to potentially be in the presidential debates. There's no way that anyone wins the presidency without appearing in the presidential debates. Bruce Fine. Uh, who has filed the lawsuit, his claim to fame is is that he helped bring Nixon down in Watergate. Uh, He says this lawsuit is the biggest thing that he's done in his life from the standpoint of changing politics in America. So there is, um, you know, there is some hope out there. How did you raise the million dollars last time? I guess that was just just to clarify that one thing. I mean, this is mostly well, online. really, it's it's online and it's people that donate, and it's obviously people that donate and believe in the cause and end up donating. And this way is the same go around. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that do donate to this. 
relative to Republicans and Democrats, really just a drop in the bucket relative to Democrats and Republicans. Okay, uh, let's talk about a few issues. Uh, I want to start with immigration because I think this is certainly the one place where you probably differ most sharply with the Republicans. Uh, you probably differ a little bit less with the Democrats, but it seems from your past statements that you would go a lot further than they would in terms of liberalizing uh, immigration policy uh, in the U.S. Why don't you give us your stance on it uh, and tell us why you think you can make a compelling case to the American people uh, about why this is the best idea, especially given that there does seem to be a lot of widespread skepticism about the impact, especially of low-skilled immigration now. Well, um, I've been in New Hampshire. I In 2012, I started out running as a Republican. So I've been in New Hampshire. I've been in Iowa. I've been in the Midwest. And what I came to recognize then and do now is that 30 percent, 30 percent of the far right absolutely categorically believes that the scourge of the earth has to do with Mexican immigration. And as a border governor, it's really it's a made up issue when it comes to Mexican immigration. We should make it as easy as possible for somebody that wants to come into this country from Mexico to get a work visa. I'm not talking about a green card. I'm not talking about citizenship, just a work visa. Look, if the jobs are here, make the visa as easy as possible. The visa should should entail a background check and a social security card so that taxes get paid. But uh, let's recognize that immigration is really a good thing and that... Uh, Mexicans that are coming across the border to take these jobs are taking jobs that Americans don't want. Building a fence across the border is asinine. Do you worry that they're taking some jobs, though, that other low-skilled native-born Americans also would want and would take, uh, and that because there's a more supply, there's a higher supply of labor, that it's holding down the wages of Americans? No, it's just not a factor at all. And again, I speak as a border governor. The only time that wages are an issue is when language is an issue. And uh, the Mexicans that come across recognize this. Look, if they can't speak English, there is not wage parity. And so they recognize this um, better than anyone else. So they're striving to learn the language. Once language is attained, there is uh, there is, at a minimum, parity, if not higher paid, because these are really hardworking uh, people that are taking jobs that Americans don't want. When you've got a welfare state that exists in the United States, it's hard to get Americans to take the lowest level entry jobs. And that's part of the reform that should take place when it comes to welfare in this country is if you can work, you should work. Perhaps a combination of and I did this as governor of New Mexico, a combination of, of government subsidy and wages earned as opposed to just government subsidy, which ends up being less money. Why not a combination of both? Less money from the government uh, supplemented with money that you're actually making. It's a formula that in New Mexico we did see it work. Sure. You've been uh, vociferously arguing against the drug war for a very long time. Can you just lay out your position again uh, for our listeners uh, and tell us how you go about, again, convincing Americans that this is a policy worth supporting? Well, uh, good news, bad news. In 1999, I was the highest ranking elected official to call for the legalization of marijuana. 
Bad news is, to this day, I am the highest-ranking elected <laughs> official to call for the legalization of marijuana. There is not one single Congress man or woman, not one senator, not one governor that espouses legalizing marijuana, and yet 58% of Americans now support legalizing marijuana. So I guess I've done my job single-handedly. Look, I've always maintained that legalizing marijuana will make the world a better place. From the medicinal side, you've got these products uh, that are directly competing with legal prescription drugs, painkillers, antidepressants, that statistically kill 100,000 people a year. Marijuana has not been documented to kill a single individual. And on the recreational side, I have always maintained that by legalizing marijuana, there will be less overall substance abuse because it is so much safer than everything else that's out there, starting with alcohol. I don't think the country recognizes that Colorado, in their campaign to legalize marijuana, the campaign slogan... Um, the heart of the campaign was marijuana is safer than alcohol. That was the heart of the campaign. You're not heartened by the recent progress that's been made at the state level, for instance, in Colorado and I think a few other places. You don't think that this is kind of a, a wave that's sort of unstoppable now? That it, it I do. I absolutely do. But I, I, in spite of elected officials, uh, this is happening. Sure. Amazing. I, I can't think of any... Other topic with such a huge disconnect where 58% of Americans support something and you got zero politicians that support that. Now, that isn't to say that at the local level, perhaps uh, within state elected offices, there aren't those that espouse that. But at the national level, zero. Okay. Let's turn now uh, to monetary policy in the Fed. Uh, I think historically you've been pretty critical um, of the Fed. And specifically, you worried a few years ago that some of the actions that the Fed had taken um, would lead to a weakening of the dollar uh, and spiking inflation. But that hasn't happened. And if anything, it seems like the more uh, valid criticism comes from the other side, that in fact, inflation has been below target and that the Fed should have been doing more. So I guess my question is, are you willing to reconsider your views on the Fed? And would you support more aggressive monetary policy action in response to a crisis or a sluggish recovery, given that the worst of these predictions didn't really play out? Well, I, I still think it, it, it looms out there. I still think it's going to happen. I still think there is uh, a that there are going to be ramifications to continuing to spend more money than what you take in. Uh, and that we will at some point suffer these um, these results. It hasn't happened. Uh, this this is not a plus, but it's like uh, where the where the best of the worst. The entire world has been devaluing their their currencies, and when I say devalue, of course, everybody's been, everybody's printing money. But no, it hasn't happened. But if anything, it 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 gives a. Oh, gosh, maybe perhaps a hope that there still is time to fix this, because at some point I do see a bond market collapse at some point, And it will have to do with the fact that there's so much money out there and that there will be accompanying inflation that will lead to that lead to that bond market collapse. But nothing right now, n nothing ha has occurred to that extent, uh, nor is there that on the horizon. Sure. So I 
I asked about this in part because there are some libertarian economists who agree with a lot of your platform, but actively disagree with this specific view on the Fed. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you've seen some of their commentaries. And if not, can you tell our listeners, like, whose economic advice do you turn to, if not formally, but maybe name some economists whose work you respect and like and, and turn to when you look at these things? Well, uh, Chapman University, actually, uh, uh, with their entire economics department, uh, backed me last time. Um, and I really appreciated that. A lot of really, really smart people that, um, like I say, met with me and we we talked about these issues. Jeff Myron was my economic advisor in 2012. And actually, I'd have to say he probably still is. And what he has said to me um, uh, on a, several occasions is, uh, you know, Gary, you've got the right instincts. You, you've got the right instincts when it comes to all of this. And so, um, he, he's been a sounding board throughout all this, but it's been a sounding board that, yeah, Yep, an echo of... Uh, okay. And one last question on, on what you just said. You mentioned the possibility of a bond market collapse eventually. I take it you're, taking, you're talking about, about rising debt levels in the U.S., but this, is, this seems like another issue where we've learned a lot since the crisis. It seems like the balance sheet of the U.S. can be deployed to fight a crisis and to manage the economy to some degree, right? But in particular, in the aftermath of an acute crisis, it can be quite effective. You seem to disagree with that. Uh, and I guess I'm wondering if you have some sense of when it gets so bad that you think that there will be a freak out in the bond market. Are we anywhere close to that point? Or why not support the continued use of the Fed's balance sheet in order to make people's lives better? What I've said is, is first of all, the government is not going to announce that two weeks from Thursday there's going to be a bond market collapse. So go take all the money that you have and spend it immediately because two weeks from Thursday it won't be worth a thing. These things do just happen. Uh, and so with regard to prediction, I'm going to say it's out there uh, as as with regard to when. I've never, ever pegged a, a, a when with regard to it. But um, you know, I, I think back growing up, I think back to the Vietnam War and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, there was some serious accompanying inflation that went along with uh, funding of the Vietnam War. And uh, I guess what you could say was the start of the great society or welfare, in this case, um, Medicaid and Medicare. I think the same thing happens here. And no, there's no, there's no predictor as to when, but Will it happen? I, I, I do think it's inevitable. Uh, are you Unless back to, I mean, the fix is is balancing the federal budget is actually, and, and that gives you a fighting chance, in my opinion. It doesn't necessarily take you out of the woods, but it, at least if you're spending the same amount of money that you're taking in, I think that's the most that we could be possibly be doing from a governmental policy standpoint, and that's what I would advocate. Would, would you do that? immediately, though, because to balance the budget, you'd have to reduce spending drastically. And the likelihood is that that would create a very deep recession. How would you do it? Well, uh, currently, it's about 20 cents out of every dollar that's being spent. Um, based on my experience as governor of New Mexico, a 20% reduction in government is very, very possible. I mean, it just it, it, there just has to be the willingness to, to do that. And if we were to do that, I think you could see an explosion in economic activity uh, ultimately. Private sector is, is um, 
is where it's at. It's not the public sector. And look, you've heard <laughs> you've heard this before. If 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 that's such a panacea, spending money, public money, then why is there a private sector? I mean, let's just let's just really go for it. Let's just have one hundred percent government employment. The parts of the deficit that are expected to increase increase quite dramatically later on are all tied to uh, entitlements, so Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Would you replace those with anything if, in fact, you were to cut spending on those safety net provisions of the U.S. budget? Well, I'm in the camp that really uh, believes that um, there are those that are genuinely in need, and but for government, they would um, not get what it is they need. But I think we've gone way over the line. So back to a 20% reduction in these entitlements, and I'm not talking about Social Security now because Social Security is imminently savable, but Medicaid and Medicare are really the budget busters. And given the baby boomers and their uh, retirement, this is going to get a lot worse. And so I would turn these programs over to the states entirely. And based on my experience as governor of New Mexico, could I... Could I, in fact, deliver goods and services to those that were that are truly in need with twenty percent less money? I absolutely believe that, based on my experience uh, having administered over Medicaid uh, in New Mexico. Okay, I want to ask you a question about money in politics um, because some of that money does come from people who support libertarian ideas. What do you think about that? So the Koch brothers, for instance, they give a lot of money to Republican candidates. I mean, what do you think about or to support Republican ideas? What do you think about the money in politics, even when it lines up with your own points of view? Well, it really is not lining up with a libertarian point of view. Um, I, I wish it were. Politics is also about winning. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the line, gosh, Gary, love you, love what you've got to say, think you do a great job, but I just don't think you can get elected. I don't think it's possible. I did hear that running for governor of New Mexico. In that case, the money came from me. I foot my own bill for my own campaign, and that's how I managed that. Well, running for president's beyond my means <laughs> to be able to do that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, if people get a sense of, gee, this might actually, something might actually come of this, then money really does flow back to suing the Presidential Debate Commission. If that were actually successful, um, I, I think that could be a real um, head turner. Okay. Question on taxes. What would you do about the current tax code? And in general, what are your thoughts on a progressive income tax? And I don't mean on a more or less progressive than we have now, but just on the general concept of an income tax where people who make less money are taxed at a lower percentage and people who make more money are taxed at a higher percentage. Well, I'm advocating uh, eliminating income tax uh, and corporate tax, abolishing altogether. income tax altogether. Um, and capital gains. And capital gains and replacing all of it with a one federal consumption tax. Now, I point out that as a starting point, take the fair tax, which is a proposal that has dotted the I's and crossed the T's on how you would accomplish it. Do I necessarily agree with uh, how that gets accomplished? Um, you know, perhaps not, but 
back to my uh, free market economists that uh, have gotten behind me on this. Um, they all seem to say that that would be the real logical way to change taxes in America. With a zero corporate tax rate, I have to believe that tens of millions of jobs would get created in this country because where else are you going to start a business but in a country with zero corporate tax and zero income tax? So that would also mean abolishing the IRS because a collection of one federal consumption tax uh, according to the fair tax, and I would do this the same in this in this regard, is that the states would collect that and the bureaucracy to collect that tax would be minute relative to the IRS. Governor Gary Johnson running to be the Libertarian Party's candidate for president in 2016. Thanks for coming in and talking to us. Great. Thank you. But before you go, Governor Johnson, uh, what is your long form recommendation for our listeners? Well, um, when my um, best friend, girlfriend, and I got together, she asked me what uh, what book she might read to better understand me and my philosophy, and I recommended to her Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. My favorite book is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, so I, I'd put that out there for people to read. Okay. Thanks very much. And next up, we're going to take a deep dive into the financials of U.S. political campaigns. In 2012, presidential candidates spent an aggregate $2.6 billion, and that's only going to be more this time around. Uh, they spend on all sorts of things from advertising to ground support in the states where they're running. We sat down in D.C. with Vivica Novak of the Campaign Finance Watchdog Center for Responsive Politics to find out exactly what's going on. First of all, thanks for uh, talking to Alpha Chat. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Here's what I thought we might start by doing. I think a lot of people don't really understand the very basics of who's allowed to give money uh, to presidential campaigns and also who's allowed to spend money on supporting candidates in the various ways. Can you just kind of start by taking us through the different categories? When somebody refers to a super PAC or when somebody refers to campaign donations and all that, a lot of times we don't know what's happening. So yeah, can you just start right. by taking us through the very simplest basics of who's allowed to spend money? Right. It can get pretty arcane. So candidates are allowed to collect contributions from individuals at $2,700 maximum per election. So a candidate can gather $2,700 from someone for the primary and $2,700 for the general election. So that's $5,400 this year. You have to be a U.S. citizen or a green card holder to give to a candidate. So foreigners aren't allowed to give. And the candidate then uses that money for TV ads and paying consultants and paying staff, this and that. Super PACs are a whole different thing. Uh, super PACs can gather money from almost any source, including corporations uh, and whatever. Super PACs. What does PAC stand for? Oh, sorry. So a uh, super political action committee. Okay. And this is not uh, related to the campaign's individual or to a candidate's not, individual campaign. Not supposed to be coordinated with a, with a campaign committee. However, you will see super PACs that are devoted exclusively to working to support a single candidate. So every one of the presidential candidates, except arguably Bernie Sanders and arguably Donald Trump, has a super PAC 
devoted to getting them elected, and they are often staffed by people who are very close to the candidate, people who used to work for the candidate, were were consultants to the candidate, sometimes work for their campaigns. So there's separation, but sometimes the separation is optically not that great. It seems Um, awkward, too, that you have all these people who are friends with the candidate, uh, but they can't talk at the same time that the campaign's going on. Well, they can talk, but they're not supposed to coordinate their spending strategy. So uh, you can actually have the candidate show up at a super PAC event where the super PAC is raising money for itself. That's okay. The whole, where the line is, is actually a little bit fuzzy. But what is clear is you can't have the candidates campaign and the super PAC getting together and saying, okay, I'll buy ads in Iowa and you buy ads in New Hampshire, and I'm going to spend this much if you spend that much. That kind of thing would be pretty clearly prohibited. Now, super PACs can raise contributions. There have been donations of $10 million to a super PAC this this time around. Who is that, by the way? Uh, well, there's a number. Uh, there have been uh, Robert Mercer, who's a hedge fund guy in New York, uh, familiar to some of your listeners, mm-hmm. I'm sure, uh, has given a lot of money uh, to some of Ted Cruz's super PACs. An interesting pair, the Wilkes brothers out of Texas, who nobody had really heard of until this election, have also given a lot of money to Ted Cruz. They are brothers who made their fortunes in the fracking industry. So you have uh, some familiar names, some not so familiar names, but lots of money being raised. We know who they are, and there is no maximum on their contribution. Right. They have to disclose their donors, but they can give any amount they want. The super PAC can spend it on its own, but can't give it to the candidate and Got can't it. coordinate. So, And then there's dark money. Dark money are uh, 501c groups under the tax code. What they does are, that mean? Yeah, they are nonprofits <laughs> and politically active nonprofits, especially since uh, some of the legal developments of the last few years affecting campaign finance. And they uh, can pretty much do the same thing as super PACs, except that they are not supposed to spend the majority of their money on politics. Again, there are some very fuzzy lines there. And the big thing is they don't have to disclose their donors. That's why many people call it dark money. It seems uh, odd that anyone would contribute to a super PAC if they can go unexposed by contributing to dark money. Uh, So what are the sort of different motivations for contributing to one versus another? Well, it's sort of exactly as you say, the transparency angle. Some people actually don't like for money to to have money in politics be um, opaque in this way. Democrats are more leery of the dark money route than Republicans are. But you're right. There are a lot of people who think, gosh, if I give 100000 or more to, uh, to some group, if my name's disclosed, then I'm going to get all kinds of calls, right? People are going to harass me for my political views, maybe, or uh, maybe other people will come to me for money. So that is is part of the reason that uh, people might give to a dark money group. And with super PACs, it's either because they don't mind the transparency mind. and fewer restrictions on what they can do with the money. Is that right? It's not so. Uh, it's not so much fewer restrictions on what they can do with the money as uh, I think sometimes people like the transparency. They like to be out there known for being able to do this. And, you know, they also believe it's the right thing to do, maybe. You mentioned that there have been legislative changes, legal changes to the campaign finance system in the past couple of years. Probably the one that most people have heard of is the Citizens United case. 
So since we've seen these changes, what's actually happened? I mean, there's clearly more ability to spend money. How much more money are we talking about? The Citizens United decision and some of the other developments since then have basically opened the doors for um, corporate money to go directly into politics. And it's given, I think, individuals a greater sense of comfort in being involved in the big money game. Some of these things, some of this money was actually technically possible before Citizens United, but the picture became much clearer after that decision and a couple of others uh, that, you know, there were basically no holds barred at this point. So the easiest way to measure the difference is looking at outside spending. This is spending by super PACs and these politically active nonprofits. So comparing presidential years in uh, 2016, as of February 25th, $222 million has been spent by these outside groups. Uh, four years ago in 2012, that number was uh, $57 million. And in 2012, of course, Citizens United had already been decided, so it was starting to go up. If you look four years before that, at 2008, uh, it was only $12 million. Okay. So it's uh, quadrupled in four years and then it quadrupled again yeah, in four years. Right. Okay. And the Citizens United decision was right between the 2008 and 2012 right. elections. Uh, and that's mostly uh, super PAC spending or that's a combination of everything? It's a combination. The... It's, it's both super PAC and uh, social welfare groups, although super PACs have probably been the bulk of it. Okay. What, what are we seeing happening? I mean, you mentioned that Democrats actually have been, or tend to be a bit more wary, at least on the, sort of on the dark money side. But what kind of correlations are we seeing between the amount of money that's that's available to campaigns or to support a candidate more generally and actually, you know, what, how, how it's affecting the outcome of the primary so far and how it's being used and how that might differ between the parties? Well, money isn't everything. I think that's the, the big lesson here. And we're sort of wondering if some of the super PAC investors feel like they've gotten a good return on their, on their funds. Yeah, um, because there have been a number of candidates who have had um, big super PACs behind them, uh, including Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, uh, Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, candidates who have had to drop out even though they've had big money backers. They weren't raising enough from regular contributors and you know, frankly, you just need a good candidate, to be honest, in addition to money. Money is a prerequisite, yes, but you need more than that. So Jeb Bush, you know, the biggest uh, failure in terms of having the most money behind him, but just not connecting with the voters and uh, having having to drop out. I think it's actually worth floating the number on Jeb Bush because that's really astonishing. Uh, I think... Uh, Something like a hundred and twenty something million had been right. spent on his behalf versus almost nothing for Donald Trump in terms of outside spending versus spending that you know he himself has uh, right. loaned to his own campaign. Yeah. So right to rise, the super PAC backing Jeb Bush, which he personally raised money for before he formally entered the race, raised almost one hundred and twenty million dollars. And spent a lot of it. His campaign raised $33 million. But, you know, and that was far more, uh, especially in terms of outside money, than any other candidate. And he went nowhere. There's only been about uh, 
$2 million, a little less than $2 million collected by pro-Trump super PACs, because they're really, you know, he's not encouraging the formation of such such outfits. $25 million for his campaign, but he's just a different case. You can't compare him to the others because he's mostly self-funding. The point about you know, why they need to raise this money, I mean, a big portion of this is advertising, right? And to, for Trump, arguably, he's getting a lot of free airtime without having to right. pay for any of it. Right. But how, how are people spending their money? Well, people spend their money um, in different ways. For instance, Ben Carson has been spending a lot of money to raise money. He's been spending a lot of his money just on fundraising. Mostly, though, it's it's TV, media consultants. You know, there's a lot of travel involved. There are a number of, of huge uh, categories that take up pretty big budgets. We talk about a number like $120 million and Jeb Bush. On the Democratic side, the super PACs that are uh, either supporting or attacking uh, Hillary Clinton get a lot of attention. But the amount of money they spend is smaller by many orders of magnitude than the money being spent or raised by the uh, super PACs that are on the Republican side, right? This is something I noticed in your blog. Can you talk about what the dynamic is there? Like why so much more money uh, on the Republican side uh, than on the Democratic side? So Hillary Clinton has raised much more for her campaign than Priorities USA Action, the super PAC supporting her, Mm. has raised. Although- Priorities has stepped up its game more recently. But again, uh, and and this was true when Obama was running as well, Democrats tend to be more hesitant to give to these uh, groups that can take unlimited sums. They tend to be believers in more the traditional way of doing things and object sometimes on philosophical grounds to, to, to the big money in elections, the really big money. You guys had a a report that came out recently titled How the Parties Worked the Law and Got Their Mojo Back. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. We're now talking about the outsized amount of money that super PACs can raise and spend. In the past, the way that the actual campaigns, as opposed to the outside money, raised money, right, was by essentially enlisting a bunch of bundlers, right? People that could get together groups of other people, right, their friends, whatever, uh, who would each spend the maximum amount of money that you could you know, donate to a campaign. So $2,700 or whatever. Now, individually, that's not that much money, but 2,700 times you know, a couple of hundred friends, and now you're starting to make a fairly substantive contribution. That amount of money was threatening to be swamped, or it was threatened by the amount of money spent by the outside groups. Your report was essentially about how the political parties could stay relevant despite those maximum contribution limits. Can you just take us through that argument? Yeah. So there were limits uh, and still are on how much an individual can give to a political party and uh, separate limits on how much uh, individuals can give to state parties and obviously to candidates. And with these outside spending groups popping up that could take unlimited amounts of money, the parties were uh, wondering how in the world with limits on their their contributions, um, they were going to have enough money to still be able to have an influence and shape elections and groom candidates and do all the other things that parties do. So one of the things that that has happened in the wake of, again, some of the court decisions is the Joint Fundraising Committee has become a big thing. So, and what's that? Okay, I'm getting there. The, uh, there was a decision in 2014 called McCutcheon that basically said 
that pre-existing aggregate limits, I hate that word, right? But uh, limits overall on how much an individual could give to a combination of candidates, parties, et cetera, which were about $120,000 a year. That was all an individual could give to all the entities except outside spending groups. But those limits were unconstitutional according to this decision. So there's no limit now on how much an individual can give. There are separate limits on how much you can give to a candidate or to a party, but no limit on how much you can give overall. So that amount can be huge. And the way that uh, the parties have been working this is by creating these joint fundraising committees where they band together with a candidate or many candidates. There can be a hundred candidates now to take contributions from individuals and then distribute the money among themselves. The Hillary Victory Committee is the big one for the Democrats where there are, besides the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and a whole bunch of state parties are participating in this as well as Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, But what seems to be happening is people will give money. People maybe have maxed out on their contributions to the DNC, but they're giving to all these state parties. Well, what happens then? The state parties have been turning around and sending that money to the DNC because there's no limit on how much the state parties can give to the national party. So essentially, you have individuals who are, in effect, giving much more to the national party than is allowed under the limits by just going through this more circuitous route. One big workaround. Right. Politics and money. And then the other thing the parties have done is they've created their own super PACs. So there is now one for the Democratic Senatorial Committee has a super PAC, and so does the the equivalent House Committee. So there are essentially these big national super PACs that exist at the party level now. Speaking of aggregate spending, last time when you add everything in, the campaigns, the parties, and the super PACs, uh, how much was spent in 2012 and how much can we reasonably expect to be spent in this cycle? In 2012, for uh, for everything, including for House and Senate candidates as well as presidential, it was about $6.2 billion. We have not estimated how much will be spent this time around. We expect it to be more. Uh, and for the uh, presidential campaigns? Of the $6.2 billion or so that was spent in 2012, about $2.6 billion was for the presidential alone. Okay. Also expected to be more in this cycle? Probably more, given especially the number of candidates we have, the number of candidates who seem to be staying in for a while, the number of super PACs active uh, on behalf of the candidates. Uh, I think it's going to be more. Okay. Are they going to be polluting our television sets a little bit more aggressively too? Oh, I think you'll I think you'll be able to um, see a lot more of them on the airwaves, and I know you're waiting for that. Okay. Vivica, what's your long-form recommendation for our listeners this week? Well, I'm in the middle of reading Jane Mayer's new book, Dark Money, which may be kind of predictable given what I do for a living, but uh, I'm finding it fascinating. It's about uh, the Koch brothers who have been very active in that world and how the whole thing kind of got started. Vivica Novak, Center for Responsive Politics. Uh, Thanks for talking to us. Good to be with you.
And before we go, as always, we are going to do our long form recommendations for listeners. Shannon, what you got? Um, I'm going to recommend an episode of a podcast I've recommended before, uh, Slate's Whistle Stop, which is with John Dickerson. It's about presidential campaign history. Uh, earlier in February, he did an episode called The Straight Talk Express about John McCain's 2000 campaign and the primary in New Hampshire. And for anyone who wants to hear a bit more about sort of what it's really like on the trail and what was unusual about that campaign, it's a great listen. Those quaint old days of 2000. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what about you, Cardiff? So I'm going to recommend an article in Rolling Stone by the writer and polemicist Matt Taibbi. Uh, don't always agree with what he writes, but he's got a rollicking fun read in the last edition about his take on Donald Trump's candidacy and essentially how the American electorate is essentially set itself up to be conned by a con man. And Donald Trump is no ordinary con man. Sounds like a good one, especially yeah, this week. A lot of fun and, you know gaining increasing and worrying relevancy uh, as the campaign goes on. And that is all we have. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode. We are going to be skipping this Friday's edition and we'll be back next Friday. But if you download Alpha Chatterbox, our sister podcast, later this week, you can hear Shannon's fascinating interview with Washington Post editor Marty Barron. Of course, Barron featured in the Oscar Best Picture winning movie Spotlight. We just found out this past weekend. He's an intriguing guy, and this interview is one where I think you're going to learn a ton about journalism and where it's headed. So definitely download Alpha Chatterbox. And Shannon, I think it's time to get us out of here. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Please uh, give us a call. Let us know what you think of the show. You can leave a voicemail at 917-551-5012. You can also send us an email or a voice memo to alphachat at ft.com. You can tweet us. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. For show notes and links to our recommendations, check out ft.com slash alpha chat. And finally, if you like the show, if you want to let us know what we could be doing better, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out and it helps more people find the show. As we've noted in the past Editor and producer Amy Keene can't run for president because she's Canadian, like Ted Cruz. Sorry. But I'm still thinking about starting a super PAC on her behalf. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll be back not this Friday, but next Friday with another edition of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.